listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, picking it up where we left off two weeks ago. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Paul writes this to the gathered Christians in Colossae. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let's pause and pray. Orient our hearts to hear from the Lord today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You are present in this room. Right now, as an act of worship, we surrender every other agenda, every other pursuit, every other task. We just lay it aside. We choose to focus now, knowing and believing that you're here and you want to speak. And I pray, God, that the power of your Spirit and your Word would speak deeply into our hearts today. Help us to sweep aside every distraction and receive what you might say. That your kingdom be established in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. In all of Paul's writings, there's a pattern that we see whenever he gives instruction to these churches and these Christians. There's a pattern. Paul first begins with what is real and what is true. He says, this is what's true. It's already true. This is what's real. Therefore, in light of this truth, now, here's how you need to think, and then here's how you need to live. So it's all about getting our thinking and our living to line up with what is true. It's not the case that we're trying to think and live our way into something that is not yet true. No, it's the opposite. It's already true. So because it's true, now let's start thinking this way. And let's start living this way. So you see it, for example, in this particular verse, in verse 12. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So he's saying, this is who you are. This is what's true about you. This is what's real about you. You're God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Doesn't matter what else you think about yourself. Doesn't matter however else you feel. You may feel unchosen, but the reality is you're chosen. You may feel unholy. But in Christ, you're holy. You may feel unloved, but the reality is you're loved with an everlasting love. You're loved with an unimprovable love. So this is who you are. This is what's true. Doesn't matter if you feel it or not. This is the truest thing about you. Therefore, because this is who you are, because this is what's true, now, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, because you're God's chosen, holy, dearly loved people, now let's think in a way that's aligned with that. Let's get our thoughts aligned. Let's let's reflect on it. Let's imagine it. Let's envision it. Meditate on it. And then we look for ways to step into that and manifest it in our lives. Amen? So let me give you a diagram. I've used versions of this diagram before. Uh, and a couple other messages I preach here over the years, but I, I feel like it'll be very helpful for us to walk through this. So here's a, a diagram, and the first thing I want you to notice about this diagram uh, is that there are three parts to you. 
according to Scripture. We see, for example, in Hebrews 4.12, there are three different parts. First of all, there's the part of you that we call spirit. Your spirit is the very core of who you are. It's the very center of your being, your essence. You might call it your heart or your will, your ability to choose. But that's the very core of who you are, your spirit. In addition to that, there is also your soul. The word soul in the Greek, it comes from the word suke. It means, it, it means psyche. It has to do with psychology. It has to do with your mind. So your soul is the world of your thoughts. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, hopes, dreams, concerns, fears, worries, uh, memories, anticipations for the future. All of that, the world of your thoughts, all of that has to do with your soul, your mind. So you got your spirit, you have your soul, and then you also have your body. I don't think I have to elaborate there. So we have those three parts. Now watch this. This is God's design for how things ought to look. This is God's design for how things are supposed to look in our lives. First of all, God wants to be Lord over your spirit. That's the very core of who you are, your heart, the very center of who you are, your essence. When you surrender your life to Christ, something in the core of your being comes alive, right? There's, a whole, there's now a, a new nature in you, a new, a new you, a new identity in Christ. In fact, not only that, but God's spirit even unites with your spirit. So God wants to define the very core of your being. That happens when you submit your life to Jesus, all right? Then it's our job, out of his empowerment, it's our job to then be Lord over our soul, which is our mind, our thoughts, to govern what we think. That's our job. That's not God's job. We have to tell our brains what to think, right? So God's design is that he would define the core of our being, our heart, and that our heart would then begin to tell our brains how to think and what to think and what not to think. So our mind, our soul, gets aligned with God's truth. And then our mind tells our body how to act, how to behave. And then our bodies impact the world. So watch this. If everything lines up perfectly just like this, then God's will gets carried out on earth as it is in heaven. It's as simple as that. From God to spirit, spirit to soul, soul to body, body to world, God reigns on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for those two amens. The problem is we messed up. As a human race, we rebelled against God. And when we rebelled against God, we surrendered our God-given authority over to the adversary, Satan. And that's why in the New Testament he's called the ruler of this age. Satan wants to take God's design. He wants to pollute it. He wants to pervert it. That word pervert in the Latin, perversio, it means to turn upside down. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to take God's design for how things are supposed to look, and he wants to flip it upside down, and it looks like this. So it begins with Satan himself, who the Bible calls the God of this age. In the book of 1 John, it says that the whole world lies under the power or the influence of of the evil one. And so Satan wants to take his influence in the world, in the culture, in the, in the immediate environment around you. He wants to use that to now impact our bodies. Everything that comes at you comes at you as mediated through your body, through your eyes, through your ears, through your five senses. 
So Satan uses his influence in culture, in the world, in the environment around you, and it triggers fleshly desires that then begin to want to shape the way you think and influence your thoughts. And our minds begin to receive it and turn it over and think upon it and meditate on it. And before long, if we're not careful, those things can even begin to impact the very core of who we are, where our spirit takes hold of all of this garbage that the world is feeding us and says, maybe this is what's true. Maybe this is who I really am. So you see, Satan reverses everything. Under God's design, I am defined from the top down, from the inside out. From Satan's design, I am defined from the bottom up, from the outside in. So for example, there's a young lady who, uh, for the sake of this message, I'm going to call her Candace. Candace grew up in a home with two brothers. And she, she had a father who was really good about giving affirmation and encouragement to her brothers, you know, for whatever it was, maybe sports achievements or academic achievements. He was always very quick to give her brothers recognition for what they've done. Even though she was better at it than her brothers, a lot of that stuff, she was better at them than, than they were, but, but he would never really give her recognition for that. He would never really affirm her in those same types of things, but he was very quick to give it to her brothers. What she did get recognition from her father for was things to do with her outward appearance. And usually, most often, it was negative. You know, he would, for example, he would make like snide comments and he would say things like, uh, uh, looks like you're packing on a couple extra pounds. Uh, do you really need to eat that extra piece of chocolate cake? Or your hair kind of looks disheveled today. Or, man, that dress just doesn't look good on you. Or something's off with your makeup or something. And sometimes it would be positive. Sometimes he would, you know, say, man, it looks like you're losing some weight. Or I really like how you're being disciplined with your eating habits. Or uh, your hair looks really nice the way you're doing it. Or that, that dress really suits you well. And it's nice, you know, as a, I'm sure as a daughter to receive that kind of affirmation from your father. It's nice. But the problem was... If that's the only thing you ever get recognition for from your dad, well, then it communicates something, doesn't it? It communicates a message. And the message is that my worth as a human being is largely determined by my ability to get noticed by a man, to get a man's attention, to, to impress him. And so it's no surprise that from around the age of 12, Candace starts developing an obsession with her looks, her appearance. And then around the age of 14, she develops an eating disorder. And around the age of 16, she, she becomes sexually promiscuous. And you see, that's all this pattern, this pattern that I just showed you, Satan's design. Now, it's not the fact that her father's demonic or anything like that. All he's doing, he's just, he's just regurgitating the same old garbage I'm sure he inherited. I'm sure he probably saw his dad relate to the women in his life like that. And maybe that guy's dad you know, saw his father uh, react in the same way or respond to the same, in the same fashion to the women in his life. So it, it, perhaps it was like this generational sin, and until somebody breaks it in Jesus' name, it just continues on and on and on. But all he's doing is just regurgitating the same old patterns that he has seen modeled in his life. But you see, this is what Satan does. This is how Satan operates. It's usually very covert. It's usually very behind the scenes. But he likes to take his influence in the environment around us 
And in Candace's, Candace's uh, sake, what he does is he takes all of that and he uses it to communicate through her eyes, through her ears. He communicates this false self, this false image of herself. And she absorbs it through her senses, through her environment, through her experience. And, and over time, she concludes, this is who I am. Uh, my identity is directly tied to my ability to get a man to notice me. And so she believes this deception, and it defines her to the core of her being. Well, Candace ends up eventually giving her life to Jesus. And she submits her life to Jesus. And the moment she does that, everything that the Bible says is true for a Christian becomes instantly true for her. And the very center of her being, in the core of her being, her spirit, she is now given new life, new identity in Christ, a new self, a new identity, a new, uh, a new nature. And the very spirit of God is now dwelling on the inside of her and united with her spirit. And now she has been made holy and blameless and spotless and righteous in Christ, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And all of that becomes true instantly when she submits her life to Jesus and the very core of her being, her spirit. But how many of you understand she's still got all those old deceptions lodged in her mind? Like how many of you know just because you get saved doesn't mean your mind just automatically gets healed of all of the junk you've been feeding it your whole life. You still got all of this junk, man. You got all these old memories, all of these things that have been said to you and done to you. You're no good. You're useless. You're worthless. You're packing on extra pounds and all of that type of stuff. It's still floating around your mind. And that's why it's so important that we take the Bible seriously when it says, take every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. We are under, under God's authority to tell our brains what to think. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Think on things that are noble and true and beautiful, Paul tells us. So watch this. There's this conflict that takes place. And we'll see it in this next diagram. This is true of every one of us to some degree. So there's a conflict here where, on one hand, God in our spirit makes us new. We submit our life to Jesus, and we become a new creature. The old's past. All is made new. And there's newness of life in the very core of my being. And God begins telling me in my spirit what is true. He tells me who I am in Christ. He tells me what my worth is. My, wor my worth is tied to the cross. I'm worth dying for because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price. That's who I am. And God tells me that in my spirit. But on the other hand, Satan doesn't give up. He starts, he continues to use his influence in the world and the culture around me to communicate a false message of who I am. So there's this battle that's taking place, and notice where the battle's taking place. It's in the soul, in the mind. This is why it's possible, and some of you, this is your story right here. This is why it's possible that in truth, in reality, you're a whole new person in Christ. God's made you new in the core of your being. Whatever it means to be saved, that's what you are. And you've been made new. You've got a new identity in Christ. So it's possible that that can be true in your life, and yet your life is still messed up. Why? Because your mind's still messed up. And if we don't get our minds in alignment with God's truth, if we don't tell our minds what to think, we're not going to walk in the destiny God has for us. So we've got to tell our brains what to think. And this is why the spiritual disciplines are so important. And this is why I make such a big deal out of the spiritual disciplines. What are the spiritual disciplines? 
They're just simply the habits of healthy prayer, absorbing Scripture, reflecting and memorizing Scripture, gathering together in community with close friends, believers, worshiping together, practices like giving and tithing, practices like fasting. Why do we do these things as a Christian? Because these disciplines help us in two ways. Number one, they help us to stay aware of God's presence throughout our day, where we're not just thinking about him for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, but we we are abiding in Christ, and throughout our week, we are remaining attentive to the presence and the voice of the Holy Spirit. So these disciplines help us to stay focused and attentive to the Lord, but they also help retrain our minds to stop thinking the old junk and to start filling our minds with God's truth. See, your mind is sort of like, uh, if, you, if you picture like the Hoover Dam, your mind is sort of like the valve to that dam that controls whether or not and how much water is going to go through. Your mind is the valve. And so if we can open our valve with the assistance of the disciplines of the Spirit, if we can keep that valve open, now the, the very Spirit of God and the reality of new creation can flow into our life and through our life so that God's design will be operative in our lives. So the very life of God is flowing through us to a lost, broken, dying world. But the valve that controls that is the mind. So we've got to keep that valve open. All right, so, so over in verse 13 now, Paul goes from verse 12 to verse 13, and he begins to talk about forgiveness. Why? Because one of the all-time great cloggers of the valve is unforgiveness. So Paul tells us in verse 13 that we should bear with one another, that we should forgive one another. He says if anybody has a grievance, and then he stops, and he reminds the Colossians why forgiveness is so important. Notice he doesn't tell them, hey, you need to forgive because it's a good idea. Or you need to forgive because it's a nice thing to do. No, the reason why forgiveness matters so much is because our Lord first forgave us. Forgiveness is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Without forgiveness, there is no gospel. Without forgiveness, there is no good news. Without forgiveness, you and I are permanently estranged from God for all of eternity. But thank God, He has made a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled in beautiful, unbroken relationship with Him. So forgiveness is central to the Christian faith. Without forgiveness, you have no Christianity. So Paul tells them and reminds them, you need to forgive as forgiven people. When we choose not to walk the path of forgiveness and humility and self-denial, we're choosing to live in a way that's not congruent with God's character, not congruent with God's will, and we're going to end up struggling in other areas of our lives. Some of you right now, you've been in a spiritual rut for a long time, and perhaps, I'm not saying definitely, but perhaps the reason why is because you're walking in unforgiveness, and you're miserable. And your life is a mess. And spiritually, you're a wreck. Because you're blocking the valve. You're you're blocking the flow of God's kingdom. And so you're going to struggle in your relationship with God. You're going to struggle in your relationship with others. You're going to struggle in your relationship with yourself. 
Let me give it to you in the image of a, a vegetable garden. How many of you have a vegetable garden right now? This is vegetable garden season. I'm awful at it. I'm terrible at it. I just, I don't know what it is. I have a talent, a special talent. I can kill plants almost overnight. Other people, I got other people that always bring their overgrown plants to me. Ryan, I can't kill this thing. Can you take care of it? I'll take care of it for you. Um, but with a vegetable garden, you, 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 you go to the store, you buy some appropriate soil, the right kind of soil, and, and you, you get your, your bed all ready to go, and, and, and you plant, you take the seeds or the plants, you put them in at the appropriate depth, you water it, you fertilize it, and that's how you get your vegetable garden going. But, you know, that's really just the first half of it. The second half of it is tending to the garden on a daily basis because every day you've got to look out and watch for weeds because these weeds, if you let them grow, if you let these roots continue to expand, they start sucking out all of the nutrients that's supposed to go to your plants, and they end up choking the life out of your garden. So every day you've got you to not just feed the right stuff. You've got to pull out the wrong stuff. As Christians, we're not just trying to cultivate the right fruits of compassion and humility and mercy and all of that. We also got to pay attention to the weeds that can suck the life out of our garden and keep us from being as fruitful as God wants us to be. One of the reasons why a lot of Christians sometimes are not fruitful is because they got weeds that have taken over their garden. And the quicker and easier we can identify them and yank them out, the better off we are for it. So it's not a matter of whether or not Christians should forgive. The question is, how do we go about that? So I'm not going to preach much longer. Just got a couple more minutes here, maybe a little bit more than a couple minutes, to be honest with you. But not much more. But what I want to do is I want to just give you a few little things about forgiveness, what forgiveness is, what forgiveness is not. And for some of you, this is going to take a huge amount of pressure off your backs. First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting that anything happened. It's not pretending like everything is okay. It's not ignoring problems. In fact, did you know this? You can forgive someone genuinely and still confront them about what was wrong. Why? Because forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Forgiveness only requires one person's consent, your own. Reconciliation always requires two people or two parties. And in order for true reconciliation to happen, the wrong has to be brought to light. It needs to be acknowledged and admitted to, and then it needs to be made right. Only then can true reconciliation actually happen. But forgiveness, as I'll mention in a moment, doesn't even depend on that person's response at all. Even if they never even acknowledge what they've done, you can still forgive them. In fact, you must forgive them. So, so it doesn't mean you ignore the problem. It doesn't mean that you have to like the person. It doesn't mean you have to be friends with them. It doesn't mean you have to trust them again. And it definitely, definitely, definitely does not mean that you have to remain subject to abuse. When you're being abused emotionally or physically, forgiveness is not keeping yourself in that situation to continue to subject yourself to that. That's not loving to yourself. It's not loving to the other person. That's not okay. That's not what we're talking about. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is simply releasing the offense to God. That's probably the simplest way to see it. It's simply saying, this person has hurt me. They've offended me. But I'm going to refuse to hold them hostage in my mind. 
I'm going to say no. Again, I'm telling my brain what to think. When these thought patterns emerge and I start having these anger fantasies against them, or I start rehearsing the offense and replaying it in my mind over and over again, all you're doing now is you're just making the wound worse. What you do is you say no to those thought patterns. And sometimes you've got to do it on a daily basis, maybe multiple times a day, where you catch yourself. You, 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 that thought enters your, enters your mind. Sometimes you can't control that. Your thoughts, it's going to happen. But you just recognize it for what it is and take it captive and lead it away. Nope. Nope. I'm not going to rehearse that. I'm going to release the offense to God. And what I am going to do is I'm going to entrust myself to the one who judges justly. See, this is what faith can look like in your life. Sometimes we think of faith as, man, that guy, that guy really, uh, you know, just took a big step of faith, took a big risk and, and uh, you know, just whatever. And, and, and that's true. But faith sometimes is simply saying, I believe that God can handle this. I believe that the God who is just can take care of it in his timing. And I'm going to trust myself to that. I'm going to deny myself my right to retaliation. And I'm going to simply entrust it to the Lord. And folks, that's when you know the Spirit's working in your life. You want to talk about signs of revival? Okay? The greatest sign of revival is not somebody shaking on the ground speaking in tongues. The greatest sign of revival is when somebody can deny themselves in humility and forgive somebody who's offended them. That's when you're able to say, look at the Holy Spirit working in that person's life. Because they're looking more like Jesus. Which is kind of like the point, right? That's what we're after. That's revival. That's a real sign of revival. It's people that are learning to forgive well. That's the kind of revival that I want. I want a revival of Christian character in our lives. But it doesn't get zapped into us. It gets formed in us over time. Amen. All right. So, so when we release it to God and trust it to God, that's when the healing process can begin. So how does that happen? How do we go about it? It begins first with a conversation with God where we simply ask God, Lord, is there someone that I'm withholding forgiveness from? Who do I need to forgive? And you take a moment and you just allow God to speak. Now, some of you, you don't even have to ask. You know the person that you need to forgive. But sometimes what can happen is we've been so deeply hurt and offended that sometimes we just bury it and we block it out. And so we, we begin with that question, Lord, is there somebody that I need to forgive? And then we just simp simply listen and we wait. And when that happens, there's a, a number of things that can take place. One of them is that perhaps as you're sitting there listening to the Lord, there may be a bunch of people that come to your mind. You may have multiple people that you realize, I need to forgive these people. Or maybe there was just one single event that multiple people were involved in. And so you got a bunch of people, and sometimes it can get really overwhelming. Like, I don't even know where to start. And that's where you just simply ask God, God, where do I start? Who do you want me to start with? And recognize that this is a process. Forgiveness is a journey. I want you to know that. Most of the time, when, when you've been deeply hurt, it doesn't always get healed in one moment. I remember one of our speakers uh, a year or two ago, one of the, there was a pastor that I invited to come and speak. I don't want to say his name because I don't have permission to share his story. But he shared very honestly with us. I had never known it about him. He's a big, tough, strong guy. But when he was a kid, he was abused by, um, I believe, a priest. He was abused. And this resentment, this bitterness festered in him for years and years and years. 
And one of the things that he shared with me, with, with us, and it was so profound, and I think it was so important, is he just drove home the reality that forgiveness for him didn't happen in a moment. He said he prayed every day for like weeks. I can't even remember how long he said it took, but for weeks, every day, he had to choose to forgive over, over, over again. And he said after a certain amount of time, that's when it began to break. So understand, forgiveness, give yourself a little bit of grace and mercy here. Sometimes it's going to take a long time. It's going to take multiple times a day where you got to decide to forgive. Nope, I'm not entertaining that. Nope, no to that thought pattern. I'm not rehearsing that in my mind again. And so we got we to approach it as a process. All right. So a couple other quick questions, and then we're going to put this into practice in a moment. Another tricky sort of situation that can happen is you might think, well, what, what, if, um, what if the person that I need to forgive is totally unrepentant? Like they've deeply hurt me, and they don't even know it, or they know it, and they don't care, and they won't even say that they did something wrong, and they would do it again if they had an opportunity. What do I do in that situation? Can I still forgive somebody when they're unrepentant? The answer is absolutely yes. You must. Even as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he's praying for the forgiveness of the men who are currently doing it to him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, if you want to say it like that, while we were separated from God, Christ died for us. So some of you, this is the most Christ-like thing you can ever do, is to deny yourself, humble yourself, and walk the path of forgiveness. Choose to walk that path, even when a person is unrepentant. Now, here's one more tricky situation that can happen. What if you go through this process, you ask God, God, is there somebody I need to forgive? And you wait and you listen, and all of a sudden, God puts a person in your mind, and you're like, oh, man, I do not want to forgive this person. God, I can't, I, I just can't forgive this person. They, they just crossed the line too much. What do you do about that? All right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if that's you, but you know if it's you. Maybe there's somebody you just don't want to forgive. You can't forgive them. You feel like you can't forgive them. How do you handle that? First of all, be real about it. Be authentic with God about it because God already knows. So just don't try to fake it. That's the worst thing you can do is fake it and just say, okay, I forgive them. No, now you've just painted over it and you've covered it up and, and you think it's resolved and it's only going to get worse because you've got to deal with the root of the issue. So you start with authenticity. We see that in the Psalms, man. There's times where, where David is just like so honest, brutally honest. You know, he's saying things that are like, is that really, in, is this the Bible? You know, he's praying about his enemies. He says, Lord, bash their teeth in, you know, and we're stuffed in that. But God welcomes that honesty. He welcomes that authenticity because listen to me, God can only work with authentic hearts. When we are inauthentic before God, we can't even go anywhere. We can't, God can't do anything with us. We have to start with being real. And so what you do is you just tell the Lord, Lord, I do not want to forgive the person. Or I feel like I can't forgive the person. What they did was too much. And you just simply express that. And then the next thing you do is courageously you give God permission to begin doing a work in your heart. I don't want to forgive them, Lord. I don't want to, but I know that this is what God, I know this is what you want me to do. 
I'm not ready to do it at the moment, but I invite you to begin to work in my heart and bring me to a place where I am willing to forgive. You give God that kind of invitation, he's going to take you up on it every time. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.